This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Now, if you know your history, you may know that between 1975 and 1979, an estimated 1.5 to 3 million people died in the Cambodian genocide carried out by the Khmer Rouge regime led by Pol Pot. How do you commemorate such loss on such a mammoth scale? This is one of the the ways that art can help us commemorate, can help us heal, a work that is being presented as part of Melbourne Festival this year. A Requiem for Cambodia, Bang Sokol, I hope I've pronounced that correctly, um, is uh, an artistic response to the Cambodian genocide. Joining us is the Director of Cambodian Living Arts, Pluen Prim. Pluen, welcome to Triple R. Hi. So this is obviously uh, not... uh, a light topic. It's not an easy topic to discuss and talk about. A, an artistic response to to genocide on a horrific scale. Um, talk to us before we begin to talk, talk about this work itself, uh, which um, involves kind of music and uh, and film and other art forms uh, in a requiem. Talk to us about Cambodian Living Arts, an organisation founded in 1998 to focus on preserving endangered Cambodian art forms. Yes. Uh, well, you've, you know, I think one of the reasons of why we exist and why, you know, we do the work that we've done is because during that that almost four years of uh, under the Khmer Rouge regime, they targeted specifically intellectual artists, teacher, ev- whoever would had a uh, education background and artists also and and especially artists because uh, they were kind of the voice of the nations and there have been a lot of also influence in their music and in the films that they were producing and the Khmer Rouge. uh, I think similarly when we see a strong ideology going on around the world uh, even like I've been reading article about uh, ISIS and why they destroyed also those cultural icons, and so I think it's it's something that keeps repeating. Um, so eighty or ninety percent of the artists uh, of Cambodia were killed during those four years and those atrocity. Cambodian traditions had been passed on more or less through oral traditions, so from the master to the teacher, from generation to generations, uh, and so. In when the country started to rebuild itself, arts and culture was a you know didn't almost exist because a lot of these artists were hiding also the arts form during that time. So it was kind of an emergency time that we needed to preserve and to transmit those oral traditions. And that's how we began in 1998 as a kind of almost rescue missions to find and identify survival master, those 10, 20%, and help them connecting with a younger generation and you know, get back their dignity as an artist again and be able just simply to teach in their own ways. 
So, so in many ways, it, uh, an act of preserving a living library of knowledge. Exactly, and I. Well, it's funny because you know, arriving here, uh, I went to this uh, "Welcome to Melbourne" uh, done by the Indigenous people, and I related to here because it's they're talking about fifty-five thousand years of traditions that had been passed on, and we've been trying also to keep that. When, but when a genocide happened, and you kill almost a generation. Generations, it's so important and it's vital to keep preserving, you know, those lineage of artistry that the country had for hundreds or thousands of years. I find it fascinating that, as you say, so many uh, regimes attempt to rewrite history, to uh, to cr- create a blank slate uh, in uh, uh, a year zero rather than looking at the, the, the centuries of tradition prior and also that they... It's not only targeting artists because artists are repositories of that those centuries and, and, and more and millennia of history, but that artists also encourage people to think for themselves. Mm. Uh, and so to, to create a compliant um, uh, population, yeah, silence artists, silence intellectuals, silence thinking. Mm. Um, clearly then the, the Cambodian Living Arts ha- uh, Project has preserved a history and... Does that mean uh, the organisation is now at a point where it can commission new histories? Well, ex- well, uh, uh, exactly. I would say uh, today um, we've been in operation for almost twenty years, and w- our focus has shifted also from mainly preserving to really, uh, I would say, uh, investing or nurturing a new young generation of artists. Uh, and what we want to see them is also. Uh, Although there's such a strong traditions in dance and in music that that they follow the the mastery of what they're learning from their master, but at the same time we're pushing these young artists to start to talk about their contemporary context, but from a basis of the traditions and also one of the important part is also from the history of Cambodia. Um, what we need to understand is the young generation that had that are born had been born after the genocide don't know much about what had happened uh, in somehow in our in the way our cultural are done is like a parents uh, kept that completely almost hiding. Uh, the reality of the past uh, and also just not long ago about 10 years ago that the, in the history book of, of schools that that period of the tragedy were starting to be thought uh, so although it's almost 40 years since the genocide uh, the new generations is almost just beginning to really understand what had happened it it, it makes perfect sense that it's it has taken over a generation to come to terms with something so shocking and climactic that it's only now that a new generation um is perhaps ready to accept and understand what exactly yeah so the work that has been created and which is um having its world premiere here for the melbourne festival this requiem is drawing on the the traditional European European notion of the Requiem Mass, for example, uh, to uh, uh, honour the, the souls of those who have departed, but then very much infused by and informed by traditional Cambodian musical styles, language and ideas. Tell us more. Exactly. Uh, well, because I, when we first thought about conceiving this piece is, is, is to help 
uh, resting the soul of two million people. So it's not it's not an easy task and in an artistic way. And we wanted to find the right context and the right ritual and the right form to, so that it can be done in the proper way. And so we, with our with some research, we you know, found that. Bang school, which the the term that we've used, uh, the Western I would say concept is a requiem, but the the more meaningful Cambodian traditional way uh, is this ritual that is performed today is called Bang Sokol, and the meaning of what this this term means is this white shroud that we put that we lay on a dead body, and the rituals that helps. Uh, uh, getting the soul out of the body so that it can go to the next life. It's also this part of the Bangsko ritual. So it has a really deep meaning in terms of, of what we're trying to do, but in an artistic way. And so incorporating uh, a chamber choir, uh, an orchestra, Khmer vocalists, but also incorporating film, for example, as well. So this blending of art forms and blending of musical and social and historical traditions to create something entirely new. Yeah, I, I think uh, in, an, in an art, in a complex art, artistic project like this one, I, we wanted to make sure with you know, the artists that had been involved that you have a full experience. You know, we, we first conceive it as a music, as a requiem, uh, but then I realized that to really understand the full length of what had happened, uh, I've invited Riti Pan, a uh, filmmaker, to join our team to work with us because I felt like illustrations needed to also help the context of this piece. And he, you know, he created something that he's never done uh, before, which is to create also a triptych film. It's not a film. It's almost three films he's created. And so you, you are emerged in such a, a multidisciplinary uh, experience. Um, so it's, 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 as you just said, it's, it's music, it's visuals. There's also staging elements. So you will be transformed. Uh, to a Cambodian almost ritual artistically. The fact that um, the film is presented as a triptych again references um, uh, perhaps a European religious tradition. The notice of the, the, the idea of the, um, the, the triptych as an artwork on an altarpiece, for example. You'd have a central piece and then wings which would fold out to present more work. So again, there's that referencing there of, of other traditions and, and informing them uh, with this work. And I understand that... Um, uh, the film is then drawing on archival footage uh, to to present the the realities of the past, but hopefully in a in a way that will help people understand it rather than be traumatized by. Yes, uh, I think uh, what 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 people will experience is is I think it's somehow when you read the title of Requiem for Cambodia, it feels dark. Uh, but what Riti uh, Pan had tried to do, it's also to almost beautify um, that tragedy. So the, it's very poetic. Uh, the experience that you will go through has this poetry that you know a lot of Riti Pan's film is also uh, doing in this way. So and with the music I, uh, of Himsopi, you you will be completely transported. And Himsopi, the composer, I understand, was a student uh, in the early day when whose studies were disrupted by the, the Khmer Rouge regime. 
taken up study again later in life. So it has this lived experience, uh, which is then informing the composition. Yes, yes. Uh, with some, him, so P was a was a child, was a children uh, in during the Khmer Rouge, both Riti Pan and him, so P. And I think uh, as we talked about uh, generational transmissions, it, I felt really important that both survivor of the regime can be kind of building this bridge between the actual generations of Cambodian and what had happened. So I think, you know, the work is, is also a testimony of how um, I somehow I would feel like as artists, uh, they felt resilient also with through what they had had to go. And as Nikariti said, it's like it's impossible to describe what we've lived through. But what is more important today is that we are able to transmit and to engage with the younger generation. The work is Bangsakol, a requiem for Cambodia. It's being performed uh, at Hamer Hall at Art Centre Melbourne uh, from uh, on Friday night, this Friday the 13th and Saturday the 14th of October at 7.30pm. You can book through www.festival.melbourne or by calling Art Centre Melbourne 1300 182 183. Tickets range from $30 for under 30s, uh, all the way through to uh, $79 in the A Reserve. So jump on the website and look at those ticket details. But as I said, uh, uh, call a Requiem for Cambodia, Art Centre Melbourne, Hamer Hall, Friday night and Saturday night at 7.30pm. I've been talking with Pluin Prim, the Director of Cambodian Living Arts. Pluin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We've got a very strong focus on the program today on the Melbourne Festival. There's lots on lots to talk about. Now, at last year's Melbourne Festival, I had children cutting my hair in a salon over on the south side of the river. This year, the company who were involved in that show, Haircuts for Children, uh, are doing are presenting another work. The company is called Mammalian Diving Reflex. They're based in Germany, Germany and Canada. Um, but the, the show they're presenting this year is All the Sex I've Ever Had. Joining us to tell us a little bit more, one of the performers, B Bays, and co-director and co-writer, Alice Fleming. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So... The, the title of this show, uh, I think some people will find a little bit provocative and some people may even find the concept of the show provocative because it's an opportunity to have, um, to hear about this from older Australian citizens, older Melburnians, about their sex lives. Alice, talk to us a little bit more about the, the ideas behind the show. What's the, the rationale? this work? Um, there's a few different rationales. So as you mentioned, Haircuts by Children is one of the success stories of mammalian diving reflex. They make a lot of work with children. Um, and it got to a place where we wanted to remind the world that we make other types of work with other types of people. So in how do you make a work not with kids? Talking about sex is a good way. Go to the other range of the age spectrum and working with seniors is a great way. But also looking at just you were talking about there the role of sex and sexuality for the for seniors and kind of the stigma attached to that. And and also the wisdom that we can we can get from people in the older generation that we often don't we don't we don't go there, we don't talk about it with people. I don't I don't I don't think I've ever had a conversation with anyone over the age of forty about sex. So it's a really great opportunity to do that. That's perhaps partially because the the 
the close the people closest to us, the <coughs> oldest people we know are often our grandparents, for example, or great grandparents. Not necessarily a, the kind of topic you want to broach with a with a, a, a gra- your your grandma or grandpa, um, because this is an intimate subject. B is it difficult for, or challenging for you to get up on stage and talk about this? Oh, it's, a hard, it's hard to answer because it's so exciting to do this and to meet these other people. But we had a lot of help and a lot of conversation to get us so that we were ready to do this. So doing it on stage to an audience, we did that last night at a dress rehearsal and it was actually easier than without anybody out there listening. I can imagine because when you're just speaking the lines and practicing and rehearsing in an empty room there's no response it's mm. kind of so having any response is going to be better and so i imagine uh tonight i think is the opening night so there'll be a little bit of nervous laughter there'll be some <laughs> laughter of recognition the occasional perhaps gasp of oh my god i did exactly the same thing at a, at, <laughs> at, at uh, but 50 years apart or something like that how were you recruited for the pro- for, for this show Oh, a friend of my daughter, a sort of person I've seen take, when I'm taking my granddaughter to primary school and something <laughs> made us suggest I might be able to, might be up for this, and but I don't know what that is. Well, just... Sexy grandma. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms, Alice, of constructing and making the show, all the performers, uh, local kind of Melbourneian people and all the stories they're telling. 14th season, we've just done it. This is the 14th season. We've just done it. This is the 14th season. We've just done it in the 14th season. We've just done it in... Last year we did it in Colchester this year and last year we did it in Sydney and we work with six locals um, and we just sit down with them and go year by year through every year of their life with a focus on sex and sexuality but also all the things that spin out, out from that. So... Heartbreaks, love, children, divorces, etc. So trying to build up a kind of, what, a grand tapestry, looking at personal histories, sexual histories, sexual liberation as well. That's something that um, I came of age, for example, in the 80s during the AIDS crisis when sex was sex equals death. Uh, so it was kind of a terrifying mm-hmm. time to be a young gay man. Uh, and so then I would hear stories of uh, older friends and colleagues when I worked at the Victorian AIDS Council. They'd tell me about their sex lives in the 60s and 70s. And I was just going, that sounds like a wonderful time. I wish I'd been around for, for that sense. Of, and this is from gay men and straight women talking about the sudden the, the the liberation that the pill provided, for example, in terms of sexual freedom, but with, without going into spoilers, because we don't want to kind of we want yeah. what's presented on stage to be kind of fresh for people. Can you give us an idea of some of the things, some of the experiences you'll be talking about in the show? Sex that wasn't married, sex, or and which would have been perhaps scandalous at, at certain times. Maybe it was. No, look, it was. I was. In my 30s, in the 70s, so 70s, 80s were quite quite a lively sexual time yeah. and things were coming open. But I also think people don't, even now, like when my mother about 15 years ago wanted to talk to me about her sex life, I didn't want to listen. So I think there's quite a lot of inhibition still around inside families. I don't know, is that true? Yeah, I think absolutely. Are any of your family going to come and see the show? My daughter's coming tonight, which 
is a, a big deal for me and perhaps for her. Yeah. A big deal in what way? A big deal to have her support? Or a big deal in terms of this is perhaps going to be more intimate than she's prepared for? Both of those, yeah. Yeah. And Alice, tell us a little bit about the range of other people who are involved, because one of the, the things that I'm aware of, uh, having heard about the, I was, the, the the word was spread saying, could I perhaps help find one or two people for the show? Um, so the so we're presenting a full spectrum of human sexuality. In this we're tr- we're trying very hard. Um, part of the recruiting process is we work with locally with the venue or festival so here we worked very closely with Melbourne Festival and the Arts Centre Melbourne to find a great range of participants and we just really we really try and get a mix and so that's a mix of um, sexuality wealth race um, as 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 much of a mix of society as we can obviously it's very hard with six people to to really have a full um, range of society, but we try very hard. So um, I forget your question now. Talking about the range of, pe- of the range, yes. Um, oh, it's hard to. So everyone's over sixty-five. Um, we've got two people. Like B was born in England, and another uh, performer was born in New York. And we've got um, a gay participant, and I'm just trying to think of any other someone born we've in Turkey. We've got a single mother. We've got people that have gone through divorces, several divorces. It's almost too hard to just encapsulate them in in kind of one. Sure. It's one of the reasons why people have to come along to the show and experience it, is, it for themselves. Yeah. yeah. Now, the show we're talking about is All the Sex I've Ever Had, <coughs> presented by Mammalian Diving Reflex. Uh, it's on at Art Centre Melbourne in the Playhouse from tonight through until Sunday, and I'll give all the dates and details and booking numbers and so on in a moment. But having I've read some reviews of the, the Sydney iteration oh, of great. the show, for example, so I have a bit of an idea of what to expect. And if people want to jump online, there's a great uh, piece on The Conversation, for example, kind of which talks about the show. And... I'm told, B, that there will be questions for the audience to answer rather than just everything and all the conversation coming from the stage. Yes, and we ask the audience questions too. Yeah, so it's an opportunity for not just for you guys, B, to talk about your lives but also to kind of enter into a discussion with the audience and to kind of try and get... to try and cross the transgenerational divide and talk to people in the audience about things that we normally wouldn't. But you don't have to participate if you don't want to. Audience participation can be (laughs) kind of terrifying for some people. Um, But it sounds like a really kind of warm and um, surprisingly simple way to encourage a sense of community uh, amongst people because one of the things that we all have in common as human beings is a sex drive, is desire, is a need for for love and nurturing and intimacy, whether that be physical intimacy uh, or emotional intimacy. And the idea of creating a sense of connection across generations or across multiple generations by talking openly about sex and uh, talking openly about our sex lives as adults and as we age, it seems like a wonderful idea for a show. It's a very emotional show too, I think. People's stories, like all our stories, are, are sort of highlighted with emotion, aren't they? And this comes out a lot. 
All the Sex I've Ever Had is on at Art Centre Melbourne in the Playhouse. Uh, it runs for two hours and 30 minutes with no interval. Uh, but I don't get the feeling it's going to be a gruelling exercise, as some long theatre pieces are. It's going to be a, a relaxed almost informal conversation despite a, a, a conference style setup on stage um tickets uh if you're i love the fact that normally for melbourne festival shows they advertise it uh 30 dollars tickets for under 30s for this show 30 dollars <laughs> tickets for the over 60s so uh if you are over 60 and would like to get along uh then this is a, a cheap opportunity to do so otherwise tickets range from 49 dollars to 69 dollars you can book by going to www.festival.melbourne or you can call the art center melbourne on 1300 182 183 to see all the sex I've ever had. I'm going along tonight at 7.30pm and very much looking forward to seeing B Bays on stage. B, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And I've also been chatting with Alice Fleming, the co-director and co-writer. Alice, thank you for coming in as well. Thank you. into the home stretch of smart arts. My next guest is one of, for my mind, uh, Australia's leading choreographers of contemporary dance and an artist whose practice has explored and uh, touched into design and fashion uh, and other aspects of the creative industries, as we now call them. Philip Adams, welcome to Triple Good R. Good morning, Richard, and flattery will get you everywhere. Everywhere. Oh, OK. Um, so, Ever is your latest work, which has perhaps, would it be fair to say, more of a dance focus than your practice what a has shock. in recent years. You've kind of you moved away from dance and now you've come back. That's an entry point into our conversation and a new entry point for... My relationship to my first love, choreography. And so, yes, Ever ever really is about me falling in love again with dance. And it's been a two-year process, Richard. And I think what's more surprising as an entry point into the bigger conversation with the work is that it's driven by those two magnificent scores, which is unexpected to be working with in contemporary dance string ensemble iconic 20th century works by John Adams, Shaker Loops, 1978, and Richard Strauss, Metamorphosen, 1945. And these are world apart in terms of the romanticism and the minimalism. So like all my works, they have a sense of other. They also bring in historic relevance and they're positioned now at the Temperance Hall, which is the new home of the company. So Temperance Hall is in South Melbourne. I'll give out the, all the, the kind of details of the whens and the wheres and the how to get theirs and so forth in a moment. But in terms of creating this work, um, one of the things that I'm already getting a sense of is that people may be viewing it in a slightly different way from what you may expect at a more traditional dance performance. Now, I've not seen the work myself yet, but I've seen some photos on your Facebook page which make me think that are the audience perhaps going to be sinking into something? <laughs> not quite, but there will certainly be a witness to the event, like a congregation in the way that we look at the design of the Temperance Hall. It's a historic Victorian building sitting in South Melbourne. And in their day, the Temperance Society held these community events, Richard. They've sort of brought a congregation to the space. And in the same flavour of that historic moment, I'm allowing my audience to be 
gathering, shall we say, a congress to the work. And what I'm finding really interesting, and you, so you talk about this in the way that the does the audience embrace the work as the design as a work of art in themselves? Yes, they do, but I don't want to give away too, too much. much. Okay. One of the things that I'm intrigued by with the piece is the you've you've referenced the music, for example, and kind of uh, romanticism versus minimalism. Does that then mean that the choreography of the work is also transitioning from kind of lush to to sparse? Over yeah, the absolutely. Of the work? I think that broader context of working with two scores which sit fifty years apart, and then how to find uh, a, a um, uniting. Uh, visual experience as much as a choreographic image to sit with those works is that I glide across both these works with a modernist brush. And so if you look at the history of John Adams' Shaker Loops, it was one of the most celebrated dance dance um, musical works used in history. I danced to it with Nanette Hassel in 1980-something. I won't give it away. And so I had a relationship with that that score from the get-go in my first entry point in the postmodern canon of where dance works was very, very relevant in Melbourne in the 1980s. Moving on to New York and being part of that denizen of like movement and that important big 90s moment where dance was just so rife in the downtown scene, I wanted to go and revisit that body 30 years later. But it, the interesting moment is what would I do with it 30 years later? Or how do I come back and fall in love with that moment? So I chose that score and um, arrived in the conditions that uh, the music is just simply a stunning build of loops and waves and the oscillation of it just brought me into a broader context for me to examine how choreographically I could work at such speed and dynamic precision. I really restrained the whole work and tightened the box, almost strangled it down to a very conceptual minimalist experience with the work. And then as you talk about that transition, how would one motivate the idea of then moving on to a score which really has nothing to do in historic significance to the first work. So that's where you see Philip transition as the artist. I'm 52, Richard, and I've had a long history of movement in my DNA in my body. But also along the way, as you paid witness over the years, visual arts have played a super central motif and role in everything that I've made. And so I'm asking for patience from my audience as they view this experience as witness to where the artist literally... Um, has a morphosis through the idea of movement into object. And so that involves a cinematic ovation to Richard Strauss's Metamorphosen, which is extreme in its romantic climaxes. And it's traumatic. It's like it's this um, pouring out of this, um, uh, yeah, trauma that was written by uh, Strauss as a result of responding to the bombing of Dresden at the time. So... Yeah, I won't give away too much again, but there are certainly many objects and to witness and uh, experience through cinema, inflatable, plastic bags and other such um, beautiful, shiny, um, Modrian-esque, yes, painterly expressions to the score. In terms of access points for audiences for whom uh, who may be more familiar with the visual arts as opposed to contemporary dance, for example, you, you've mentioned kind of conceptual and minimal and, and patience. Um, is this going to be a work that 
do you think that visual art literates audiences will find an easier entry point for this than audiences who may be coming to it from less of a of a, a, a dance or arts background? Absolutely, and a good comment, Richard. I think that judging on the audience reaction so far of that transitional space in the work where the spectacle is distilled completely and removed from the work, so much so that there is no physical presence in the second work. It is just object-based and cinema. And I look at that, that moment and so do the audience on look at it as judge, as if the room, we'll call it a room, not the temperance hall, becomes a gallery. And I've noticed the audience start chatting at a certain point in the work when, I'll give a little bit away, a catapult machine is brought into the temperance hall. Of course you have a catapult machine, Philip. Of course you do. flings (laughs) these uh, pillows that look like kind of 60s pop or a bit Jeff Coombs, maybe 80s. We could put that in the sort of early 70s, 80s motif of British pop, new art, and or New York, of course. And and they, they, they fling, the catapult machine flings these soft pillows into the space as if they're being paint flung into the air and it certainly draws a lot of attention to this to the space as a shifting idea that the the body has now become a complete and utter observation through materiality and as the audience do sit behind a white picket fence another clue surrounded in this church-like environment they become kind of witness to fulfilling the whole vision of the work as an artwork in itself. So the audience by the end actually become the entire ever of the work's interests to transition from choreographic ideas into visual space. How valuable is it to have the support of Melbourne Festival in presenting a work like this? Well, the, it's... It, it's, it's it's kind of overwhelming. I feel like I've been I've had a comeback <laughs> in a way. I kind of sit in the underground and I also sit in the bourgeois. I'm one of those artists that kind of fluctuate between many conversations in, over the history of my work. But to be positioned in the Melbourne Festival, it's also uh, a, a great recognition of my um, yeah. Look at I say twenty five years of uh, contribution to the city, but now we're seeing it in a space that's been resuscitated. And the festival have acknowledged that the Temperance Hall is a new place for interdisciplinary and edgy art work. It also produces interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary performance, visual art, new music, and other ideas that are not yet been realised by emerging practitioners that need that support. So Melbourne Festival has, you know, opened up a, such a, a bigger conversation for my work and now for the Temperance Hall to be part of the arts community. And uh, the other part of that conversation is the audience. So that could include you if you would like to see ever the latest work from Philip Adams Ballet Lab. It's on at Temperance Hall, located at 199 Napier Street, South Melbourne, just a short stroll from the Clarendon Street tram, if, like myself, you're a public transport user. Uh, it is on tonight at 8pm and then there's a bit of a break over the weekend uh, and then it's on again from Monday the 16th until Saturday the 21st of October, again at 8 p.m. It runs for one hour. Tickets for the under 30s are 30 bucks. Otherwise, uh, tickets range from $39 to $49. Uh, you, if you want more information and bookings, jump online www.festival.melbourne. The Melbourne Festival itself is on now until the 22nd of October. Philip Adams, thank you so much oh, for joining us. Richard, always a delight to talk to you. And
congratulations on your four-star review in The Age, by the way. Ah, thank you. Have you? Do you read reviews? Well, I really like this moment where we're going to head. I do read reviews. Whether they come with a one-star or a four-star, I embrace them all. You know, and um, I think in this, I'm being honoured with a four-star review from Jordan Beth Vincent in The Age was affirmation of, of, the, of the goodwill and devotion from the artists who put also, you know, their time into developing this conceptual work. And it has been described, and I did read recently, as super trippy and somewhere between a Moldavar and Picasso. Oh, fantastic. Meet 20th century iconic conceptual art performance and other ideas and queerness. What a way to sell it. So uh, the work is the latest work from Philip Adams Ballet Lab ever. As I said, jump online to the Melbourne Festival website, festival.melbourne, for more information on tonight at 8pm and then Monday the 16th, the Saturday the 21st, again at 8pm. Philip, thanks so much for joining Most us. Most excellent. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.